Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we continue our mentorship journey where we help one of our listeners workshop their pilot from inception to final draft. And once again, we are joined by Paul Chang. Welcome. Hey guys, how's it going? It's going good. Thanks for being here. And this week we are taking a look at the beat sheet of his pilot, Mid Death Crisis, which you can read at paperteam.co slash 134. So let's get started. So just a super quick recap of our goal with this whole mentorship. It is a monthly workshop where we help a writer who is one of our listeners create a new original TV pilot script from inception through to final draft. That's right. And in our inaugural mentorship episode, which was PT128, we got introduced to Paul's new half-hour comedy pilot idea, Mid-Death Crisis, and we familiarized ourselves with the world and characters he was creating when he gave us a basic series overview of the show. We also gave him some of our notes. We had a creative discussion about the show, and Paul continued to the next step of the project, The Beat Sheet, which is what this episode is all about. Yeah, and if you want to hear Paul's thoughts on our first session coming out of that and how he's been working to address all the notes and everything that we covered there, you can take a listen to our Patreon-exclusive episode where we tackled all of these questions and more. You can do that at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. That's right. And as we said in our first mentorship episode, we want this process to be interactive with you guys listening to us right now. So you can follow along at home, uh, whether it's in your writer's group or our Facebook group. And we've had our first thread about basic series over you to coincide with the release of the first step in the mentorship episode uh, with people sharing their series of reviews on our Facebook group. So in conjunction with this episode, we will be creating a thread where you can share your beat sheets of your new pilot and give feedback on other members' content. And you can do that at paperteam.co slash group to join our Facebook group. Yeah, we really want to encourage you to take an active role in this and be a part of the community and, and put your ideas forth and become kind of a big writer's group for each other. We actually also had some feedback from our listeners via email regarding Mid-Death Crisis and that first mentorship episode. So we did want to highlight an email that we got from uh, listener Steve Troutman, who, funnily enough, is also co-host of the Writers Guild of America West 3rd and Fairfax podcast, which is a great podcast if you guys have heard of it. Definitely recommend tuning into that one. So we're not going to be reading the whole email, but we did want to bring up a couple of the thoughts that Steve had on the overall concept of the show, which again was our previous Stapper episode. This is not going to be covering the beat sheet that we'll be talking about later. And we can just discuss a little bit amongst Paul and ourselves. The first issue that Steve brought up was this idea of characters, and specifically the fact that Mid-Death Crisis, quote, has a strong single main character at its center as opposed to a two-hander, three-hander, or ensemble. This type of series almost always requires a popular star for that role. Sandra Oh and Margaret Cho are the only two that come to mind, end quote. Now, we did want to bring up the fact that at least I feel this is kind of a problematic excuse to say that, oh, we can do this show because there's no strong Asian American lead in existence right now. And I would argue that this is kind of why we don't have uh, that much progress in diversity is because we don't have that Asian American lead to cast. Therefore, we cannot cast this Asian American show. It's sort of this circuitous reasoning that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, exactly. I think that we need to be creating shows and providing opportunities for the next Sandra Oh and Margaret Cho to emerge. You know, there are our plenty of shows where almost complete unknowns have gone on to become huge stars because of that vehicle. Look at Friends or Freaks and Geeks or ER. You know, there'll always be some role in the show for your big star to attract attention. You know, perhaps the Mother Time character or Tina or even Fred, you know, could fill that need. I don't think that we need to place the responsibility solely on the shoulders of the the protagonist to be a huge star in order to make the show. Aside from all of that, I think that casting probably isn't really a consideration at this early stage of a creative project. I think that the concept 
again, isn't even necessarily based on Mo's ethnicity or age. So it feels like this is something to address much later when agents and producers, et cetera, are trying to package it, sell it, pitch it, and whatever. Right. Especially at this stage where the goal is to create a compelling pilot. So if you're just creating a pilot only based on sellability of the concept or sellability of the lead characters, I think that's uh, sort of a short-sighted way of thinking about a spec sample, which is supposed to put you on the top of a reading pile and get you staffed or potentially develop this project later on. But it's really to make you shine as a writer, not someone who is very well aware of the, you know, the production. The next element that Steve brought up was elements surrounding the world. I think Steve raises a couple of good points here. Discussing the world, for example, the device of the death being 24 hours after being touched. He wondered about the logic of, you know, what happens with people who die suddenly in an accident or a medical condition in the middle of the night. And, you know, potentially that bringing out more questions than it answers, like what if a living person unintentionally touches a reaper, all of that kind of stuff. And I think those are, they're interesting questions to explore about the world. He also mentioned, you know, other different kinds of reapers who deal in different assignments or types of deaths, you know, just one for elderly people or one for like, you know, the different kind of areas or some more prestigious than others as Mo worked her way up from like the heavy duty assignments to something better. Now we are going to touch on that device a little bit later in the episode, but honestly, I think that some of these questions and quote unquote problems we can look at as opportunities for story rather than obstacles to it. So what if Mo does accidentally touch someone, you know, now she has 24 hours to undo it because they're not meant to die or something or some fun irony where he ends up dying anyway in some other way maybe it's actually fred and this is a huge season story point about her almost accidentally killing her love interest etc yeah one thing i did want to reiterate is that this mentorship process chronicles an ongoing ever-evolving creative process even though we are recording this episode of this podcast which means to some level the content appears to be locked in and finished the reality is that mid-death crisis is still being figured out we are in the early stages still on the beat sheet so even though world-related questions are interesting questions that can generate stories and ideas and so forth, not having specific answers to every single issue at the beat sheet stage is not something people should hold against Paul or Mid-Death Crisis because this is only step two. Yeah, and Steve's last point in the email was regarding the stakes, which again, we are going to be covering a lot more on in the later episode going through the beat sheet. So we'll, we'll table those thoughts for now. Once again, we do really appreciate the feedback that you guys have sent in and especially Steve for sending us his thoughts. So if you have your own thoughts about the process or have questions that you want to ask Paul about mid-death crisis or his writing, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. But now let's get into the beat sheet. Paul, can you just walk us through the broad strokes of your beat sheet? And just for our listeners, you can find that in our show notes as well and read along. Yeah, sure. All right. So we start off and Mo is reading a book in her car in Brooklyn and Suddenly, a man falls off a building nearby. Um, he's a, like a drunk 20-something, and Mo ends up picking up this guy's soul and driving him to the portal to the underworld. While there, she meets with her boss, Mother Time, who chastises her for getting yet another low-star rating. Mo goes home to her apartment where she hangs out, and her friend, Gerald, who is another reaper, comes over and asks her to pick up a soul that he's meant to pick up the next day, and Mo begrudgingly agrees. In the second act, Mo goes to pick up the soul that she promised Gerald she would pick up at a, a motivational seminar called Zest. So while there, she watches as Tina, the motivational host, gives a rousing speech and leads everyone in a powerful sort of team building visualization exercise that has a big impact on Mo and shakes her to her core. After the motivational seminar, Mo goes with the rest of the seminar attendees to night bowling as a kind of like a fun after seminar activity. 
And while there, she encounters the person whose soul she is meant to pick up for Gerald, a woman named Harriet. And Harriet is about to commit suicide. She's standing on top of the bowling alley and is thinking about jumping off. And Mo basically convinces her to not kill herself. Mo goes back to her apartment and signs up for the 10-week seminar, just as Gerald bursts into her apartment, freaking out that Mo didn't pick up the soul. He then proceeds to kill one of Mo's neighbors in order to cover up the fact that he basically let a soul get away. And we end on Mo horrified at the chain reaction she's created. Excellent. Now let's get into our thoughts. And first of all, let's talk about things we absolutely loved in this beat sheet. Yeah, I, I really like the millennial Reaper Corey showing up on a bird scooter. <laughs> I thought that was a really funny moment. And it's nice to see the kind of the differences between the different Reapers and, you know, the ones who've been younger or older, that kind of thing. Yeah, I definitely agree that contrasting all those Reapers and adding depth to sort of the differentiations between those people is a thing that you should lean into, not just push back. I also like that fun subversion of the idea of purgatory actually being some sort of eternal life where you're forced to live forever instead of just dying peacefully. Yeah, another thing that is really cool in terms of the character elements is is the fact that you added another dimension to Mo's character, I thought was really interesting, especially adding that mystery surrounding her past, her having, uh, well, maybe not visions, but at least remembering perhaps who she was before. All, all this different element of mystery really adds potential depth and legs to her as a character, which I really appreciated. And I did like that kind of dark turn at the end where we see that it's not all just kind of zany comedy. There is real darkness and death and kind of stakes and consequences to what's going on here as well with Gerald killing the neighbor Steve. Yeah, that was definitely an interesting add-on. Uh, the other thing I do want to point out is I do love the line, plotting your point on the y-axis. <laughs> yeah, that was a great line. All right, let's get into our actual notes. And first of all, let's tackle the sort of macro notes and big picture and the structure of the beat sheet and the pilot. Yeah, so in terms of the acts and also the act breaks, there was a little bit of work that we could do there. In particular, act two felt the most thin to me. And I think that there's some areas there where we can pull from other acts and kind of restructure where the acts are actually ending and also finding stronger act outs on a lot of those. Yeah, I definitely had similar thoughts about the act outs really pushing the momentum in those act outs, which we can talk about in a second. In terms of the acts themselves, I also agree that the second act felt a bit thin, but I do feel you have opportunities to extend the world of Reapers and sort of get an idea of her routine and even the threat level because you do have real estate. I think this is an example of a beat sheet that it's not overstuffed with plot. I think you can add more depth and world building to this pilot and add a depth to it. Sometimes it's better to have a beat sheet that works on the bare bones rather than overstuffing it, like you said. So it's not necessarily a criticism, but just uh, that there might be some more opportunities there. I guess for me, one of the big things was that I felt that Act two should actually end a little bit further into where you currently have act three. It felt like kind of an odd act out to just kind of be the end as she's agreeing to go bowling with the seminar gang, unless it has some kind of greater story consequence. It felt almost more like act three should probably end when Mo decides to sign up for the seminar, because that feels like a stronger kind of act out to me. Interesting. I had another thought about the end of Act 2 because in my mind, so the, the emotional arc of the episode is about Mo's transformation. And that transformation is in part triggered by Harriet or sort of the, be confronted with this person that she has to kill or not. And so it made sense to me to end Act 2 slightly earlier and at the point where Mo is put in this position where either she's going to have to kill this amazing person she doesn't want to kill or she doesn't kill her, but then Mo is basically going against everything she's believed in, plus risking the worst thing that can happen to her, which hopefully has been crystallized in the first act in that threat. 
So that, that's just my thought on the end of Act 2. Yeah, I could honestly see it ending at either of those places. And uh, to that point, I think that you can kind of pull some of the stuff from the end of Act 1 that's currently there into the start of Act 2 and instead have the first act ending on the meeting with Mother Time and the big stakes of all of that. And then that's our act out. And then at the top act two, we're in the apartment watching reruns, et cetera. Yeah. And to that point, outside of our own pitches and fixes, I do want to say that sort of the common note that we seem to have about the act house is that they don't really feel like they carry enough momentum or surprises to move us to keep watching and follow the next act and so forth. Because you're gonna end on some active question or emerging problem or some kind of threat or twist that makes us wanna read on. And as they stand now, the act outs feel a bit passive, especially for Mo. Right, or almost a little bit arbitrary. It's like, here's a scene, and then you know you could kind of end it anywhere. But like Alex is saying, I think if you find those strong moments of like, oh God, what's gonna happen next? You know, something big just changed or flipped or reversed or whatever that's gonna push us to the next thing. I did kind of like the act outs on the end of the episode, though, I felt like that was probably the strongest one where Gerald kind of goes crazy. Yeah, I did have one note about it. I do love that episode out on Gerald murdering the person. I would actually end the episode there because I think the beat sheet that we saw doesn't end on Gerald killing someone, but more about Gerald thinking that Corey is this other threat. Anyway, my point is that I feel like you should flip those beats mm -hmm. in the sense that the end of the episode should be about Gerald killing someone and Mo being the cause of that, which is much stronger than someone else that Mo might be worried about for some right. other yeah. random person. Just so, flip yeah. that around. And so he's freaking out about being paranoid about Corey and yeah. whatever. Then he goes in and Which kills triggers. this guy. He's like, he's not going to get me. I'm going to get my soul. I'm not going to go to purgatory, whatever. And then, you know, we can still end on Mo horrified exactly. watching like the blood splatter all over the walls or whatever it happens to be, <laughs> which I think is a really fun kind of uh, thing. It reminds me of like Barry in some ways, I think, but yeah. kind of like dark ending to things. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Paul, on any. Yeah, totally. That completely makes sense. I, I, I totally agree about the act outs. One of the act outs, because I've been thinking about this myself, would love to hear your thoughts. I've been thinking for the act two break, it could be like maybe Mo gets a text or a call from Gerald being like, okay, cool. Have you gotten Harriet yet? And then she realizes that in kind of getting swept in the seminar, like Harriet has kind of gotten away. And so the act out is then, you know, she's kind of getting this pressure from Gerald to hunt Harriet down, but she's kind of like let her slip through her fingers. Yeah, I mean, I do like the outside pressure and I feel like the Harriet of it all is something that we're gonna address later on in terms of character motivation mm -hmm. and, and so forth. But I do feel like Mo needs to be put in sort of that threshold moment of whether she's gonna be deciding to kill Harriet or not kill Harriet. This is sort of the extrapolating the bigger stakes here, but that's my thought of the sort of the, the crossroad moment she needs to be in. Yeah, crystallizing yeah. her being caught between those two worlds. And like, is she going to go have margaritas and bowling or whatever and join them for the, the next game? Or is she gonna kill Harriet and take her and do what she's meant to do? Right, right. and I feel like to your point, Paul, the fact that she's getting that text and getting that clock, which I think is a great idea to have sort of that clock in that reminder of a threat can put her in that position, but that's not the end all be all. I think that's just a visualization of, oh, wait, she needs to make this decision now. And right. You can even have moments where Mo is, you know, they're bowling and, you know, they're going to go pick up their balls or whatever. And she's like, kind of like, all right, I got to touch her. I, you know, it's 24 mm -hmm. hour clock. So like she's trying to find opportunities to kill her in the middle of this thing and then can't quite bring herself to do it or whatever. Yeah. I think that's a great idea to sort of put her in a position where she clearly has a shot mm -hmm. on Harriet but then doesn't do it for whatever reason. At least maybe that's act three. I'm not sure if it's act two, but yeah. at least hinting at the fact that she's considering not killing Harriet. Right, that totally makes sense. 
So moving on from the structure to more of the stakes, one of the big questions I guess we both had is why is it important to the afterlife that souls are having a good ride on the way there? And I know we touched on this in the previous episode, but for me personally, I think that we've seen the consequences of bad ratings, but it's still unclear why it's important to management what's going on. I don't think we can just hand wave it away in the way that Mother Time currently does with the, oh, who knows, especially if it's a new system that's just been implemented. I'm curious now what's changed and why now. And so I do think we maybe need to get into this idea of what you mentioned last episode about restless souls and how that affects things. Just to tackle something else on your thought, I I did have a question about sort of why Mo is incentivized to follow this path as opposed to the status quo. I feel like it's such a tremendous change in the way this world has been functioning for thousands of years that, as Nick said, I feel like hand-waving it isn't quite giving us that oomph to the fact that this is going to be the new status quo. So what are your thoughts on, on that side of things, Paul? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I definitely hear that um, could be unsatisfying to kind of hand wave it away. I guess my my concern there was getting kind of bogged down in the mechanics of it, but it does sound like we need some kind of explanation there. So I think, yeah, even just just in that scene, having one of the characters give that exposition. It doesn't have to be exposition as much as I think this is an opportunity for setting up, for example, Mother Time as a character, because she can say whatever you want her to say. And it could be a lie. It could be whatever element that she has to say to placate Mo in that moment. And then maybe down the line, whether it's in the pilot, future episode, whatever it is, you can reveal that actually there's another more perhaps nefarious reason why there's ratings now. Uh, I just feel like there needs to be some kind of reasoning for why ratings, why here, why now? I think that's kind of the the, the note that we're hitting at. Right. And it's kind of a two-part thing. It's like, in general, why does it matter for souls to have a good time? if they're going to go die and go somewhere anyway. And, you know, like you said before, it could be because they get restless and that disrupts the afterlife or something like that. And then you've also kind of like, it's almost a hat on a hat here with the, oh, it's a new system and we're going to this ratings now, but there's also no reason for that. So like, I think right. if you're, if you're going to put that element in there, there definitely needs to be a reason for it to have just been implemented. There's a new boss upstairs, there's whatever, you know, I think you kind of go with one or the other, or you find the the rationale behind it all. Like you said, you don't need to explain like the the mechanics of it all to someone, just the reasoning behind it in a, in a simple way. I would even ask you, why do you feel it's important that this is a new element being introduced in this world as opposed to Mo being used to dealing with Uber ratings? Right. Her explanation could be, it's been this way forever. This is just a new mask on it or whatever. So like, is there a reason of, for a why now for ratings? Um, I don't th- I don't think that the newness is super important, actually. I think I can totally strip that out and just sort of simplify it. I think if I wanted to stick with it being a new thing, it could kind of tie into this idea of mother time being the new boss, right? She's mm-hmm. like, I'm coming in after father time. Let's modernize this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's always been important that the souls were in this emotional state in order to pass through. But now, you know, we have, we're in the 21st century. Let's like modernize this. Right. Let's. It's called let's, rest in peace for a reason, you know? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Like, it's it's definitely not important to the story that it's new. And maybe that just kind of, introduces needless complexity. So I'll definitely think about how it can. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's about sort of adding reasons for why Mo is doing what she's doing and what triggers that transformation. Uh, I feel like if she's rejecting a new thing, I think that makes sense in a vacuum, but then it introduces other questions that we don't necessarily want in a pilot of if this new thing is happening, how are all the other Reapers reacting? And sort of like you said, it introduces a level of complexity that doesn't necessarily add to it or add interest to it. It just adds more confusion. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that you did maybe touch on a solution there, like the mother time it has yeah. just recently taken this new position and she's trying to modernize and whatever. And I think that you can then get away with it because it's coming from a place of character. And then you lean into what is it about mother time's character mm-hmm. and the humor that we get from that, that makes her want to make things modern and hip and, and whatever it happens to be. So right. I think that that's the, what you can milk out of that if you want to go with the new angle. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, it's this element of mother time and hinting at the character and you do have the real estate there right? It's not about adding or removing scenes. It's that scene that she has with Mother Time. That's your opportunity to really highlight who this character is in contrast with Mo and what Mo's been wanting, what Mo's been doing for thousands of years. And it's, again, another version of the why here, why now. Another note that we had in terms of the stakes and and questions about the world is that Mother Time explains that her punishment, if she doesn't follow through, is purgatory, which is, in essence, living forever, which in my mind is equivalent to living just a life as normal. So why is that a punishment? Because it does feel like it's framing the whole Reaper aspect as being some kind of punishment because Mo wants to die. She wants to let go and move on. Then why is she a Reaper in the first place? Is this something that she has to do because she did a bad thing during her life? Right. It certainly does raise a lot of questions. Like as we mentioned in the stuff that we liked, it, this is an element, an idea that there's a lot to, to draw from and it is a good thing to have in place, but there are just a couple of questions surrounding it that need to be to be clarified. So, you know, the punishment now is not some sort of like disappearance or death. It's, it's quite the opposite. You have to stay alive forever doing what you're doing and obviously there's some fun parallels to that and like people's lives generally like you were stuck in this boring job forever you know so now the idea is that mo is kind of working her way through reaperdom in order to be allowed to die and i like that i think it's fun i think it's reminiscent of some of the kind of buddhist and hindu concepts of like reincarnation and samsara like escaping this cyclical existence to achieve nirvana or nothingness and so i think that there is a lot you can play with there that isn't just relying on the traditional western canon of like here's heaven and here's purgatory and all that kind of thing But I guess my questions stemming from that are like, firstly, if Mo wants to die, can't she just kill herself or run away? Like, does this mean that she's actually immortal? You know, is she reborn or respawned right back in Mother Time's office again if something happens to her? You know, it could be some fun opportunities to play with those kind of mythologies while building out the rules of this world. Yeah, this is kind of what I was saying about my question of is being a reaper a punishment? Because it does seem like it is. And so I'm curious about your thoughts on what it means to be a reaper. Yeah, I totally hear this. This I feel like this is getting to one of the things that I've been wrestling with with this beat sheet, which is basically why is purgatory punishment and what are the stakes of the world, right? So like if Mo doesn't fulfill her duties, what happens? And kind of going to what you were saying, the thing that I kind of came into this idea of the punishment of purgatory being eternal life because it kind of inverted what we typically think of as punishment. Like usually view punishment is like being killed. So I thought that was kind of like an interesting flip. And then I think I thought it mapped nicely onto this idea of like work life where you, you're, you're kind of holding out to finish your career that you don't like and you feel stuck in so you can retire and you can sort of let go and, and sort of relax. But I think the flip side of that is maybe it's not intuitive. Maybe it's a little bit complicated. My bump wasn't necessarily that the fact that she's living forever, that being sort of a negative thing. That's not my bump. My bump is more the fact that Mo wants to let go and die. But then why is she being a reaper in the first place? Like what brings people to be reapers, I guess? Right, right. Because it does feel like, especially because you have this other element of her having memories and perhaps, you know, she was a human being at some point, whatever case may be there. The fact that she wants to let go and die, it feels like it introduces a level of being a reaper that's pretty 
effed up of like, oh my God, she has to like suffer through being a reaper all these years, all these centuries, all these millennia for the hope of maybe one day letting go. Sort of introduces those questions, which are good questions to have. I'm just trying to like right. it's uh, like its own form of out. purgatory again, kind of yeah, thinking a reaper. Exactly. Like, was she a soul in life who didn't do quite right. enough good deeds or whatever, and so she has to work to earn her way into heaven or whatever that happens to be? And another thing I thought was interesting about what you had there was that Mo's death day is coming up next year, so she's like, oh, she's one year away from retirement. So does that mean that her whole character arc now is? with this whole life motivational speaker thing is realizing that she doesn't want to die and escape this existence that she thought, you know, she thought she wanted this punishment of this, uh, this reward of death or nothingness. But now is this motivational speaker going to convince her to keep living? Or is it about making the most of the time she has left? Yeah, I would say to tack on to everything we've been talking about, the fact that if Mo is perceiving being a reaper as a bad thing, then there are less stakes to her switching sides essentially and deciding not to become a reaper anymore. I feel like it does lessen that impact if she doesn't like what she's doing anyway. Right. Like what's keeping her in being a reaper? Why doesn't she just run away and do this now? Yeah, I, I totally hear that. Where I was coming at it from was that I think it kind of gets to the heart of the show in the sense of it's like this existential question. Like I feel like when you're stuck in a job that you don't like, it can feel very existential. Like what's my purpose here? Why am I doing this day and day out? Why, why am I sort of using up my life this way? And so I think um, in this world, reapers... They don't really like have a choice. Like, I, I think this is a great question of like, how do you become a reaper? Why are you a reaper? But I think I need to think through that mythology more. But I think definitely like they don't have a choice, right? So reapers find themselves in this position where they're sort of bound to carry out this duty. And Mo in particular is having this reaction to it and wants to get out, but feels trapped in it. So I think that's the sense in which being a reaper is bad, but I don't think it's necessarily like a punishment that's been imposed on her externally. Right. I feel like in that case, you need to contrast the fact that being a reaper is bad, perhaps, mm -hmm. but being in purgatory is even worse. And what does that mean? Like you got to actualize right. what that means. And when Mo understands you know, being a reaper is terrible, but being in purgatory is even worse, then we understand what that means. Assuming you do, you know, flesh it out what purgatory means and so forth, yeah. then you're putting Mo in a position where she has it bad now, but she could have it worse. And she chooses the risk of having it worse by not killing Harriet in the pilot, for example. So like, yeah. I think I think you can add on those elements that you already have. It's about sort of crystallizing what that means and the differentiations between those levels. Right. Yeah. I think as it currently stands without purgatory being defined, and you know, that could just be a choice too, that you, we don't never going to exactly spell out what purgatory is, but we do need to understand what makes it worse than being a reaper. Because right now there are similar forms of purgatory. They're both this eternal servitude of living and not enjoying what you're doing or whatever. So I guess we need to kind of like understand the contrast. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, another thing that I was playing with was just saying that maybe the Mo just like goes to hell or or purgatory is hell like I think that is much more intuitive and streamlined and just just say like hey you know if you get bad ratings you go to this hell like place because like at the end of the day I don't think that the mechanics of it are that important I think what matters is that Mo doesn't want to go there right, right? and she wants exactly. to avoid it and so I'm just thinking maybe it's simpler and more streamlined to just like use that shorthand of like yeah you're gonna if you screw up you're gonna end up in a hell-like 
Yeah, I, I feel like landscape. to me again, it's less about the complexity of it mm-hmm. than it is about understanding why Mo doesn't want to go there. And I, I feel like that's why I pitched the last time, sort of the, the bad version of she sees someone in purgatory or whatever, like the the hell of it all. And that's why we understand in Act One what it means to fail at what she's doing. And that allows us in Act Two then to see her crossing that line, risking to be this other person that's in hell instead of doing the status quo. I think right. that's why, like, that's the issue is we don't really understand what purgatory means. It doesn't have to be like literally spelled out, but we do need to understand emotionally what it means. Yeah, for right? sure. Exactly. I mean, at the risk of overcomplicating it, you know, one pitch could be that instead of it just being a plain kind of like punishment or reward, it could be a choice. You know, maybe they get a choice at the end of 2,500 years as to die permanently and escape all this existence or be reborn as a human again and live another mortal life or something like that. And so so then she actually kind of has these two worlds pulling her of like, oh, enjoy your life, be this life coach thing. Would she want to go back through all of this again just to enjoy that kind of like human nature and moment of that? Or would she like to escape it all finally kind of thing? Like giving characters choices, I think, is often a stronger way to do it. That might be a bad pitch on it, but just that kind of idea. Any thoughts before we move on to like micro stuff, Paul? Yeah, that's that's all super helpful stuff. Definitely want to think more about uh, setting up the stakes. Great. So now let's move on to more micro notes and, and character and plot related elements. Uh, Nick, what did you have in mind? So in terms of plot devices, uh, this is something that we mentioned earlier with Steve's email is the kind of 24 hour touch mechanic. It's a good device. You know, I, I like the idea and I like that the, the story possibilities it presents, but I think that as it stands in this beat sheet, it might need to be utilized more in, in some kind of way for it to justify its existence. Some sort of pressure or incentive for, you know, if Mo touches someone 24 hours, then, then we need to use that in the story of her following them around for the next 24 hours for some reason, you know, they're forcing them to wrap up their earthly affairs or that kind of thing. I just think that if we're going to use a 24 hour touch, we need to kind of incorporate that into the story rather than just she touched a guy 24 hours ago and then she shows up 24 hours later to pick him up. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I feel like you do have, again, the opportunity, especially if you're putting Mo in this position where she decides not to kill Harriet, you can use the device. And again, I don't know about the rules and so forth, but the, the bad version of it is that she touches Harriet and so she's about to kill her. But then throughout the episode, she realizes, oh, wait, I want to save this person. And so then she double taps her, whatever right. version of it is. Is there a way to undo she, it? Yeah. yeah. Right. She undoes it. And then that way, we understand, oh my God, you know, she's crossed the line because you never double tap someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that totally makes sense. I, I, I was sort of playing with the idea of Mo kind of discovering that she has the ability to kind of go back because she's never done that before, never even thought to. And so maybe that's kind of a discovery for her. Like, oh my God, like I have this power to, I guess, like cancel the clock. Yeah, that's a great idea. So that makes sense. I, I, I totally agree that if the 24-hour device should be better utilized in the... In yeah, the totally. and I think it's I think it's a good device. I just think that we need to find ways to incorporate it into the story if it's going to be there at all. It's the Chekhov's gun. Yeah, right. And, right. and you could have that great emotional moment, especially if, uh, Paul, you just mentioned the, the, the pitch of she discovers the fact that she can save the day, uh, cancel the, the death. It could be a great moment if she thinks Harriet is going to die and she's on her deathbed or whatever it is. And she, you know, the, it's like the fairy tale version of she's crying and then the tears is what saves her. Like, again, <laughs> this is a terrible pitch. I'm just saying like emotionally, that's what you want is she thinks she really, really wants to save Harriet and regrets everything she's done. And we understand emotionally that she's crossing the line that is going to lead her to hell. But damn it, I just want to be with this person. And then she still 
dies, you think, but no, actually, she's able to save Harriet because of whatever the mechanic is. And that's like an added right, level. Because then like, it's oh an active God. decision rather right. than just a, a lack of action. Totally. Yeah. In terms of the characters, at least on the beat sheet, I did lose track of a couple of them or confuse who was who, particularly with the guys, Corey, Steve, Gerald, Fred, Bob, it all kind of blurred together for me a little bit in terms of like, who's who. Alex, if I asked you right now, could you explain to me who each of those characters were from memory? Uh, Corey is the millennial. Gerald is the guy who kills the person at the end and the other three I cannot. Right, right. So I think maybe part of the problem there, and again, this is a super micro thing, is just the, they're all quite generic names, and maybe there's not enough memorable about them for me to remember who's who. Uh, again, it's a beat sheet, so like this is not the end of the world. Like obviously, when you put it into the script, you might be have those more memorable things. But I just want to keep that in mind. Like even giving them monikers, like if you're thinking about Barry, there's like Noho Hank, like that's such a, a memorable kind of character, or Gene M. Cousineau, like they're they're quite they stick out in your mind, and they have something that's like associated with them that makes you remember them, whether it's on the name level or on the character. Level, you know, like when you're writing your background characters, if you call someone like Greasy Thug instead of Thug Number One and Thug Number Two, then it kind of helps people keep track of that as well. So that was just a tiny little note for me, at least. No, I definitely concur with the idea of giving them memorable names, and it could just be like Hipster Corey, whatever it is. I mean, right. uh, you can make it whatever you want, but just so that they pop in the descriptions, especially when you look at an outline in the beat sheet, uh, because you don't have that real estate to really accentuate in dialogue or uh, even in, in plot points sort of what makes a character a character. So the only opportunity you have is in those tight character descriptions. So you do have to use those opportunities as best as you can. Continuing on the character, I did have a few comments or questions about character motivation. So one of the things that they want to mention is Harriet. Correct me if I don't understand it, but uh, Harriet is at the motivational seminar, correct? Yep. However, she is uh, this very depressed, suicidal person. I was a little bit taken aback by the fact that someone that depressed, that societal, would still proactively go to this kind of seminar, as opposed to being in the state of inertia, which depression usually is, is sort of the state of being. So I was a little bit confused about sort of her motivation, like why she had the seminar, especially if she's going to kill herself, those different elements about Harriet's character. Yeah, I think it's basically just because she, it's her trying to, like recognizing that she is in this bad place and trying to help herself by going to this thing but ultimately like it doesn't work that was the way i was thinking about it right so but, you, but like your her... question is more like why does she go there in the first place yeah essentially yeah. because i uh, to me it's one of two things that is either she wants to improve herself but then why is she then killing herself or she's at the point where she's about to kill herself but then why she had this motivational seminar if she's at that point uh sort of the my, I guess my question is, why is this seminar so important for her to be the decision point whether or not she kills herself? I, I can see it as her trying to find, like, this is one last shot to, like, find a reason to live or something. If there's some pamphlet that's, like, need a reason to live. Right. To the, like, I mean, that's totally fine. But then I would want more of that. I sure. would want to more uh, understand why, again, like, why is Harriet there? Like, why is this such a, a big thing? And I, I feel like that can tie into why Mo is there and sort of bring forth the reason of why Mo is at this motivational seminar. All these different elements that can sort of add uh, emotions and understanding of who Harriet is as a character, especially because she's the supposed to be the turning point for Mo. At least for me, is the way I read it is Harriet is the one who helps Mo understand that it doesn't have to be all about death. It can be about life. We're living. Yeah. There's also, it's interesting, I mean, I don't know if it's too much, but you mentioned that you wanted to touch on kind of the cultish aspects of the motivational speaking too. So is there some sort of tactic these people are using to take advantage of people who are vulnerable and bring them into this motivational thing and take their money or whatever? I don't know if that's something that, you know, we actually want to explore in the pilot, but that could be another reason why she might be there. 
Yeah, I think those are great things. I definitely want to think about that. I think what you said, Nick, is basically where I was coming from, where this is like her last ditch effort to see if she can find a reason why she wants to stay alive. And then ultimately, like the seminar itself doesn't convince her. But then when Mo comes in, I think part of the reason why Mo is able to have an impact is that Mo is kind of in a similar space emotionally. And so is able to connect with her right. um, in a way that like she wasn't getting directly from the seminar. So Mo gives her that like extra little push, I think. I yeah. love that idea of Mo being the one, all that uh, I love. The one thing I cannot track is emotional. And I, I get it intellectually that Harriet is going to the seminar and this is her one last ditch. But like realistically, and I know it's a comedy, but like I have struggle understanding why she would go there. And, and again, it doesn't right. have to be, it can just be a one line explanation. It can be whatever you want it to be. But I do want to understand why this very depressed, suicidal person would voluntarily go to the seminar as this, why is this the one last ditch effort? Why is this not a therapist or a friend or whoever else it is? And it couldn't just be because she saw Tina's seminar on TV or whatever it is. Yeah, and or like maybe that, it was a, a friend who recommended it. Right, it could be whatever yeah, totally. whatever it is. Yeah, I just want that answer and, and sort yeah. of bring up the reason why she's there. And then once we get that, then we understand, oh, she's at this very low point. Yeah. And then Mo comes in and changes everything or Harriet changes everything, whichever case it may be. Yeah, it could be a friend dragged her along to try to help her. Maybe that friend is Fred right. or that, you know, we use that way to kind of connect. That's a great together. idea. Totally, that makes sense. Oh, one small question I had about Mo and Tina. Like I said, I love the addition of mystery around Mo's past and the fact that Tina triggers that memory. I just had a question about sort of how Mo reacts to Tina about this, especially since presumably this is the first time something like that has happened in her life where she remembers something. So does she feel like, again, like maybe Tina has powers or uh, is there anything around that that sort of uh, surprises Mo regarding Tina and Tina's ability to pull that from Mo? So first of all, it was an idea I had. I don't know whether I'm going to keep it in because one concern I have about it is that it is whether it like undermines the premise of the show. Because the premise of the show is that like, Mo goes to this motivational seminar and like rediscovers the joy of life through it, right? And I'm wondering whether introducing this thing about memories and maybe she had a past life, it kind of detracts from that because th th that becomes a thing that she's pursuing. So I guess I'll caveat, just put that out there, sure. and, you know, whether I'm going to ultimately include it. But I think in terms of what I was thinking from Mo's reaction is that, yeah, she's definitely like really taken aback. And, and I think that's a major motivation of why she ultimately goes and signs up for it. It's because she's like, holy crap, like this has never happened before. I want to like go further into this mystery. And it seems like there's a connection here. But I don't think she like broaches it directly with Tina. Sure. Yeah. No, it was just like a curiosity on my end because, and again, even if you table it, I do love at least uh, in concept, the idea that there's something that happens to her in the seminar right. that gives her an actual reason why she wants to pursue it, especially something that has been untapped in her. So that's kind of why I love the, that idea. And I liked what you said last time in the, in the previous episode as well about like this whole thing could easily just be a grounded thing without all the supernatural if you ignore the fact that she's a reaper like this could just be someone who is in a dead-end job showing up to a motivational seminar and unlocking something inside of themselves that they want to stick around for you know you can take away all of the supernatural and it still works on a character level so i think that feeding into the reason why she needs to do this is important just on a super minor like execution note in one of the scenes right up top in act one where 
Mo goes to meet with Mother Time, Mother Time mentions that she just sent a Reaper to Purgatory for bad ratings. I just felt it would be much better for us to see that happen. And, you know, maybe it's Mo is waiting outside in the waiting room and we overhear this conversation between Mother Time and another Reaper. And it goes badly, obviously, because he got a bad rating. And then we see, you know, a flash of light or flames or heat or screams under the door as he's sent away. And then Mother Time opens up the door with a smile and is like, next, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like it kind of like ups the stakes a little bit and requires less direct exposition and her telling her, oh, I just did this and this is why it's bad. And, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's also the real estate that I mentioned before where you have the moment where you see what can happen, the, sort of the worst case scenario i think that scene is definitely that definitely one little plot question i had is what challenge tina gives them to do uh, because i do like the idea that tina challenges the attendees to get out of their comfort zone but i, I do want something more proactive or, or at least a specific that she asked them to do and then we see mo do it because maybe like we don't think she's going to be doing it because she doesn't care about the seminar and then she does it. And that way, again, it helps frame Mo's change as a character and evolution and acceptance of the seminar as a concept. Right. And that's the engine of the show too, as you touched on last time, every week there's a challenge from her to go do this in the world. So I think we want to make sure we got that in the pilot. Yeah. So I was thinking that as like Mo convincing Harriet to not kill herself, that is the thing that that's like her kind of scaring yourself do you are you saying that there so, should be something different no i'm that? saying is to that point yeah to that exact point i feel like you should frame it then it should be like that pitch would be tina saying strike a conversation with a total stranger that oh, conversation is it. her talking to harriet thereby saving harriet i mean it could just be the find your point on the y-axis or whatever and so she helps harriet find her point on the y-axis and in doing so finds her you know that kind of thing like you need you need that like challenge that she issues yeah. to them my, my point was Got that it. you need something specific it can be tied to what is already there it's just something specific yeah. rather than abstract like you know get out of your comfort zone uh, you mentioned earlier, Paul, in our discussion before this, that there were a couple of things that you had updated or been thinking about since you sent this version of the beat sheet through, which we just responded to. So is there anything that you wanted to kind of add or talk about what you've been going through that we haven't covered? I think it's most of that stuff has just come up naturally. So for example, the thing about I'm not sure whether I'm going to retain the, this idea of like Mo remembering this past life. We talked about the act out. That was something that I was I was thinking about as well. So I think I think we've more or less covered it. So going on from the beat sheet and what we talked about today, what is going to be your next step in the process? I think it's going to be going in and, and thinking about some of these things we raised, like the act out, um, making the stakes more concrete and, and, you know, explaining how purgatory works and that sort of stuff. And then I think going further and starting to outline. Excellent. So that's going to be our next episode. And maybe about a month, we will be looking at Paul's outline for Mid-Death Crisis. So for those who are maybe unfamiliar with what an outline is as opposed to a beat sheet, I think typically for most of us, it is a document within Final Draft. Some people do it on Microsoft Word as well. It really just depends. But you're actually going through and putting in your scene headings of like, here's where this action is going to take place. And then you're just kind of writing in plain language with maybe some flair and some emotion to, to help people understand the impact of the scene, what's going to happen. It's not going to be actually written out in the perfect dialogue and the scene direction and whatever. It's just kind of a, here's my goal when I go in to write this scene. Yeah, I would say the one thing that most people forget about outlines is that you still, especially when you're on staff, is that the outline still needs to convey some emotion because you got to keep in mind that those outlines are going to be read by executives and other people in the room. So they want to know the emotion of those scenes. It's not just abstract ideas for yourself internally. It has to be externalized in that way. 
Yeah, exactly. It'll go through an approval process and whatever. So it probably looks a little bit different than if you were just writing it for yourself. But yeah, that might be, who knows, for a half hour thing, it could be four or five pages or 10 pages. You know, it really depends, I guess, on how much detail you want to put into it. So, And if you want some more info on that, you can check out uh, one of our very early episodes, PT6, also one of our most popular episodes called Bringing the Writer's Room Process Home. And before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. As mentioned, you will get even more behind-the-scenes access to the mentorship process, plus other exclusive content, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in, and thank you to Paul for all of your hard work. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode, including the beat sheet mentioned at paperteam.co slash 134. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And where can we find you, Paul? I'm on Twitter at Paul Poise. That's poor poise with a Paul. Nice. <laughs> if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes or questions about our mentorship, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Ning Zhou, who is currently a story editor on Ozark. We're going to be chatting about her process from being a showrunner's assistant through to writer's assistant through to getting staffed in the room. So tune in for that one. It's going to be good. It's going to be an excellent episode. See you next week. See you then.